Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we're going to meet two winners of the 2022 Rank Prize for Optoelectronics, which has been awarded for the discovery and development of all-solid-state perovskite semiconductor solar cells. But first, we meet the co-founder of a quantum technology company that has just won an award for its disruptive technology. New Quantum is a UK-based company that makes single-photon technologies. The firm spun out from the University of Cambridge in 2018, and I'm joined down the line by its chief executive officer and co-inventor of its technology, Carmen Palacios Barricaro. Hi, Carmen. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Hamish. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Carmen, New Quantum makes single-photon sources and detectors for use in quantum technologies. Why are single-photons necessary in quantum technologies? It's a good question. So, single-photons can be used as qubits. So, one can store quantum information in single-photons. And the, the good thing about them is that because they don't interact very readily with their environment, they can they can travel for more than hundreds of kilometers and um, still store this quantum information without it getting uh, as degraded as it would get if if we were talking about matter uh, stored qubits. So single photons um, are the basis of any quantum photonics technology. They are the only flying qubit that we know. And so they will underpin um, the quantum internet as well as many of the, um, as well as being fundamental to some of the quantum computing uh, approaches that are being developed at the moment. So in the same way as um, lasers and photo detectors, underpin global communication technologies and the internet. Um, sources of single photons and detectors of single photons will underpin the quantum internet. And can you give a few examples of uh, quantum technologies that currently use your devices? At the moment, um, we are working with um, firms like PT um, and um, Arcit to uh, make quantum communication systems um, that employ uh, sources and detectors of single photons um, and looking at the integration of our technology into these systems. So in particular, they are uh, quantum random number generator systems and quantum key distribution systems. Um, So these are on on, on the one hand, uh, a module that uses the measurement of single photons to generate very good entropy and you can uh, create very good uh, cryptographic keys um, from this entropy. And the quantum key distribution system aims to send keys from point A to point B. So we are uh, building with BT and other partners in the UK, a QKD system that can interface with um, the 5G testbed that BT has at Industrial Park 
and also to demonstrate the first quantum enhanced um, link that can secure a connected vehicle. And, and so some of our listeners might not be familiar with, with QKD and, and how it uses um, single photons. Is it, is it possible to give a, a, a simple explanation of how it works? Yes, absolutely. Um, so for QKD, you're trying to send across a key that is made of ones and zeros. And so you encode this information, for example, into the polarization of the photons that you are sending. So you use two bases of polarization um, and you encode um, the, the cryptography, the, the ones and zeros into the photons with a random choice of bases. On the other hand, um, at point B, when the measurement, where the measurement takes place, um, you have a detection system and you detect um, with a random basis again, which means that you have 50% chance of um, detecting in the right basis. And when you do, you will get uh, the one or the zero. Uh, at the end, there's there's a kind of reconciliation process uh, between Alice and Bob, and there's other kind of kinds of processing that goes on. But the main, um, the main proposition is that an eavesdropper can't measure a photon without it that measurement being detected by Alice and Bob. So in the in the theoretical limit, QKD is information theoretically secure, which means that there is no way uh, to breach that that security link. Of course, that is not really the case in, in real life. There's a lot of imperfections and a lot of um, kind of errors and, and potential backdoors that can happen when you build real systems. Um, but that is the that is the, the, the main proposition. It is it is debated whether um, it is easy to integrate QKD into conventional cryptography because it works in, in such a different way. Um, conventional cryptography doesn't is not really so preoccupied uh, with sending keys from point A to B but uh, is preoccupied with kind of more networks and, and um, kind of problems that are difficult to tackle with uh, hardware that, that only kind of pinpoints this A to B problem. But nevertheless, um, there has been a huge effort in, in building up more and more the capability to be able to do this long distance and between different nodes here in the UK with BT and Toshiba really spearheading that and, and in China as well. So can you give us an, an overview of the, the technology that you're developing? Um, how do your systems create and detect single photons? Um, so I'll start with the single photon source. Um, we use small atomic defects in uh, a material that is uh, a very thin insulator. And these point defects are optically active and they emit single photons. You can excite them with light or with a current and um, they, they will emit a photon when, when they relax. So um, we have used these materials alongside uh, an optical microcavity uh, to enhance the emission in, in all respects in terms of quality and, and rate. And we've built 
a kind of photonic and electronic system uh, or module uh, around around this material that is also kind of tackling uh, excitation and readout optics as well as uh, cavity locking mechanisms, uh, all to form uh, a module that ideally you press a button, you get a photon out. And that is, um, that is very unique. So we are hoping to have the world's first room temperature single photon source product. Well, one thing that I've often well, sort of wondered about when, when you're developing a single photon source is, is b- because of the sort of probabilistic nature of photons, is, is it possible that you push the button and you don't get a photon out? Is that, um, is that a yes, problem? That How is- do you get around that problem? That is absolutely a problem. Um, so that is to do with how efficient your source is and how many photo- photons you can capture. So that is partly why you pay a lot of attention into the the optics around the the single photon emitting site as well as the micro cavity, because you're trying to increase the the efficiency they increase the amount of uh the, the number of times that a photon is emitted emitted that, that the that the system decays radiatively and you're also uh trying to improve the collection efficiency so any photon that is not emitted radiatively and not captured that will be a blank in 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 the in the analogy of pushing a button a button and not getting a photon out. And what about detection? How do you detect single photons? I'm guessing you're you're dealing with very small amounts of energy that you that you have to detect. Yes, very small amounts of energy. Um, so the traditional way of um, detecting single photons is by using um, avalanche photodiodes. Um, so semiconductor um, structures that create a very large electric field uh, inside the semiconductor such that when a photon comes in and is absorbed and forms an electron hole pair, um, you have such an electric, uh, such a large electric field that kind of separates the electron and hole and then um, the electron and hole uh, dislocate other charges and this uh, leads to an avalanche process um, and that leads to a detectable uh, current. That is that is uh, the the traditional room temperature way of detecting single photons and we are uh, we have a, a take on that. So um, we're all about making APDs better by by looking at that semiconductor structure, by looking at how you package and how you um, uh, design the electronics around this semiconductor structure. And um, in that, there is a lot of uh, scope to design these modules uh, better for particular use cases. And the technologies that, that you've commercialized, they were developed um, at the Cavendish Lab in Cambridge. Um, what were the, the challenges that you faced in um, creating commercial versions of these uh, single photon sources and detectors? Was that, was that a really difficult thing to do? Um, well, for the record, we are still doing that. So we are still kind of in the process of better engineering our technology so that it can um, come out as a, as a product 
um, hopefully in not too long. One of the main challenges that we have is that we are room temperature. And so that means that things are less stable um, and more noisy. So tackling tackling those uh, those behaviors is what we have spent a lot of time doing uh, via good engineering. So Carmen, was it difficult to to spin the company out of the University of Cambridge? Was it was it straightforward to get financial backing, or were people wary of of funding a, a quantum enterprise? It's a good question. I think um, well, first of all. The quantum technologies industry has gone through a massive change since um, maybe a year before we founded the company. Uh, up until now, there's been an exponential amount of money that has come in. Uh, so I think we're at a billion was invested last year. We're at over three billion this year. So in a sense, it was a good time to start the company, but people had not really heard of quantum photonics or of single photons. Um, and then it, it, it really helps to, to, have, to have the right kind of investors. Um, so in our case, uh, our lead investor, Amadeo, is uh, really, really savvy, tech savvy uh, people that are really aware of uh, the, the trends in deep tech. And on the other hand, it really helps to to be in Cambridge, where there is an ecosystem that is used to absorbing and supporting new tech in new industries. So even though it wasn't as common, popular as, as it is now, you know, it wasn't completely unexpected for, for the people around in the in the ecosystem. Uh, the national quantum programs were also there. Uh, there was starting to be significant government support. And so all in all, I think it was a good time to start a quantum startup. So Carmen, what's next for New Quantum? Where are you taking the technology? Yeah, so up until now, we've been uh, engineering single photon emission and detection modules and um quantum communication systems. The next thing for us is to apply that engineering capability and RIP to quantum networks, uh, small quantum networks, um, and building those those first steps towards um, the more interesting use cases that are enabled by a quantum internet. And finally, what advice would you give to a physicist who's interested in a career in quantum technology? I would say go for it. I mean, quantum is one of the most exciting fields of tech at the moment, I would say, not because I work in it, but I think it's really attracted the imagination of many people and also a lot of cash. So there's going to be a lot of jobs for a long period of time. I would encourage anyone that has an interest to to go for it, to to learn about it, to specialize, and they will have very, very exciting opportunities, not only in industry, but also in academia. And we need to keep feeding uh, academia with bright minds to, to develop what's next in quantum. Well, that's great, Carmen. Thanks a lot for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Hamish. 
Over the past decade or so, perovskite semiconductors have emerged as a leading contender to replace silicon as the material of choice for making solar cells. Physics World's Laura Hiscott speaks with two scientists who were involved in the rapid development of perovskite devices. I'm joined down the line by Akihiro Kojima and Mike Lee, two of seven physicists who recently shared the rank prize for optoelectronics for their contributions to the development of perovskite semiconductors, which will play an important role in improving solar power efficiency. Interestingly, they won this prize for work they did as early career researchers. Akihiro now works at Xeon, a company that researches and manufactures synthetic rubber materials, and Mike now works in scientific publishing as editor of the journal Science Robotics. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Thanks, Laura. So I guess my first um, my first question would be, could you explain a little bit about what perovskite semiconductors are and why they're so important for solar power? Okay, so uh, perovskite are compounds are represented by the general formula ABX3. AB are cations and X is anions. Um, among these perovskite compounds, organometal halide perovskites can take an organic, inorganic hybrid structures. Um, some of these compounds have the characteristics of direct transition semiconductors and exhibit strong light absorption. Uh, and these compounds change their semiconductor properties, such as band gap, depending on the combination of cations and anions. So I consider that these characteristics are important for application to solar cells. Thanks, that's great. In what way do they improve on the um, existing solar power technology? Um, so I think one point is um, that these materials uh, are very abundant um, and they're really easy to process, um, you know, mostly to the low temperatures that are uh, surrounding, the, mostly to the, the low terms of processing of, of these materials. Um, when I was a researcher, the big vision really was um, trying to, you know, the idea that we could one day move print these highly efficient solar cells. Um, just the way we print newspapers. Um, so yeah, yeah, the, that that was the big big plan. Yeah. Oh wow, yeah, that sounds very convenient um, to to be able to print them. Um, a convenient way of manufacturing. Um, and yeah, and, and um, the prize was awarded to seven people in total, including both of you, for um, demonstrating the early potential of perovskites. So I was interested in which specific aspects of this topic each of you did work on. So as a background of my research, I have studied the study of perovskite materials on 2005. So at the time, I have had a rough concept to use the material as a semi, uh, as a synthesizer in dye-synthesized solar cells. Uh, then, in the paper published in Journal of the American Chemical Society on 2009, uh, we reported that the organometal halide perovskite synthesized solar cells, uh, which respond on the visible light regions, 
So uh, I have struggled to fabricate the perovskite or mesoporous titanium dioxide film because no one knows how to get high concentrations of perovskite precursor at that time. So I have checked the uh, solubility of perovskite compounds in all of solvent at the laboratories. Uh, one day, I have found that the capacitor team in the same laboratory was using gamma butyrolactants and uh, have discovered the solvent um, dissolving my perovskite compositions. Uh, the energy conversion efficiency was not uh, comparable to the current perovskite solar cell in my papers. Uh, however, um, I have shown the potential of organometal halide perovskite compounds to be applied to solar cells in early stage. Oh, wow, that's great. So so it's kind of showing the the proof of principle coming up with the idea, which then other people have looked at as well. And that's really interesting. Um, yeah, and um, and Mike, um, did you work on a similar um, specific aspect or something a bit different within the, the same topic? Yeah, no, um, we sort of follow up on um, uh, Akihiro's work. So actually... Um, I flew over to Japan um, to to visit um, Akira, and um, they taught me how to make this uh, material um, at at, at Toyn University in Yokohama. One of the uh, early challenges I found with this material was um, how do we stabilize it? it um, I was fine; I made it, and then it would kind of um, not so much disintegrate, but just kind of like turn back into whatever mush it kind of began with. Um, so we kind of played about with different compositions. We used different solvents. And, and the first real challenge was just kind of stabilized in ambient conditions. What I mean there is just like in, in air without um, you know, worrying about uh, other sort of external effects. Uh, and then the next step really was to put it into a solar cell. Um, an innovative step at, at Oxford really was we were one of the first groups uh, to make um, this, this process solar cell in, in a solid state form. Uh, so using solid state materials, um, which, which really improved the uh, stability, um, and and we had some pretty good performance. So uh, th- that was our contribution um, to this oh, uh, wow. this story. Yeah, yeah. I suppose you you want solar cells to be stable in air. That's that's really important, I guess. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, thank you. Um, and. Uh, yeah, I was interested as well in, um, like, have you been following the field of research into perovskites um, and how it's developed since you, you did the work? And, and like, uh, have you been keeping up with the developments? And I was wondering how that's been going, I guess. So since the publications um, of the paper in 2009, uh, we have received the questions sometimes. Um, it was not May, but they was, and the question came uh, from the world. Um, uh, for that reason, I was expecting that uh, someone would retest our research. Uh, and uh, the perovskite solar cell became more popular and the ma- uh, main solar cell technologies. Um, however, uh, I could not see the following report uh, for a few years. However, uh, on 2020, uh, uh, the time came. Uh, the two publications uh, were subtesting me. Uh, Dr. 
Dr. Lee uh, is the author of one of the papers, of course. Um, they demonstrated around 10% energy conversion efficiency in these papers. Uh, the value is almost three times higher and uh, they are using solid state solar cell systems. I thought uh, these papers have expanded the potential of perovskite as a semiconductor materials. Yeah, and Mike, um, is there anything you'd like to add? Or? Yeah, um, so it's been difficult to follow this field. Um, so I've been away from it for some time. But um, what I do see is that it moves so quickly, like efficiencies. Uh, we were talking about, um, well, you know, back in the day, 3 4%, and then I achieved 10, around about 10, 10%. Uh, now we're up to 20s and, you know, close oh, wow. to um, silicon um, solar cell performance, right? Um, and, and the silicon's an established technology. So that's, that's really impressive stuff. And uh, one thing that I, I thought was really, think is really notable is that there are a lot of these little startup companes popping up, which are really trying oh. to sort of bridge that gap between academic research and actual um, applications, uh, products, right? So mm-hmm. I think that's really exciting. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's been difficult to keep, uh, I see like a new yeah. science or nature paper pop up every so often on, on this material. And it's, it's great. It's great for the field. It's really exciting. Yeah, it sounds like really rapid progress, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, so, um, Akihiro, um, after working at Peckle Technologies for several years, um, I believe in 2018, you moved to Xeon, which is a company that researches and manufactures um, synthetic rubber materials. So I was wondering um, what made you switch to that field? Okay, so... Uh, Xeon uh, is a well-known company for synthetic rubbers, rubber, but um, we are also conducting research uh, and development on many other materials. Um, it, uh, so now I'm interested in investigating different kinds of materials through my research, to per- research on perovskite. It is hard to answer uh, which materials are developed in our company, uh, but uh, you can expect to see new materials. I hope uh, it will be next pair of materials for solar cells. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, so I suppose there's um, it's also um, developing materials similar to to how, even if they're different materials, it's still working on um, that development of new ones. Um yeah, and um, Mike, I think you, you mentioned already um, that you now work in um, publishing, but um, in 2014, um, I believe you started a postdoctoral fellowship at the Paul Scherer Institute. Um, so was your research still on perovskites at that time? Yeah, um, it was related to these materials. Um, really, um, my goal at uh, the Paul Scherer Institute um, was to be able to create these hybrid perovskite materials uh, in a, contra- a controllable way. Uh, and then study them, study them with the instruments available to me at, at PSI. Um, the goals are pretty ambitious. I really wanted to achieve atomistic control of these materials and, and be able to characterize them as well. Um, yeah, no, it, it, was, it was a really good uh, good experience being there. And in, in, in it's, it's based in Switzerland, uh, the PSI. Ah, oh, right. Uh-huh. So, uh, and then um, in 2016, you went into scientific publishing, um, I believe, first at Nature, 
and now you're the editor of the journal Science Robotics. So, um, yeah, I was curious to know um, what made you decide to um, pursue a career in scientific publishing. Yeah, it's, a, it's a really good question. Um, yeah, there, there are um, multiple reasons uh, for my pivot from research into uh, publishing. Um, really, you know, it, it was a great opportunity, I think, uh, editing. gave me an opportunity to uh, continue to do the things I really enjoyed uh, about research. Um, uh-huh. that's intellectual freedom, get to travel to conferences and, and do the lab visits, um, and continue to support the uh, advancement of science. Um, also, I got to work really, and I still get to work with really smart people, like including um, my colleagues and, and uh, authors as well. Yeah, that, that sounds exciting. Um, yeah, definitely still sort of being in the, the science field, um, but working on a different side of it. Um, and yeah, I guess um, I was curious to know if um, either of you feel like there's any connection between um, what what you did before the research on perovskites and what you do now, or whether it's just completely fresh, um, what you both do now. So of course, of course, uh, there is a relation. Um, my basic research skill has been growth along uh, with uh, perovskite solar cells. Um, for example, um, when I evaluate materials, uh, I am using many types of equipment such as absorption spectrum, uh, scanning electron microscope, and uh, X-ray diffractions. Um, I know how to use them and uh, how to analy- uh, analysis to the uh, data uh, because I have learned this uh, basic knowledge when I studied about perovskite solar cells. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, I guess, yeah, having all those research techniques already um, must be widely applicable. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, and Mike, um, do you do you feel any connection between your research and your work in scientific publishing? Yeah, I mean, I, I still work closely with uh, academics uh, and, and research institutions, um, though my research topics and interests have shifted a bit. Um, but I think the main connection between what I did before and what I do now is that there's still this um, drive from my side to uh, help advance science. Um, that, that's uh-huh. important to me. Yeah, and that's definitely a, a worthy goal. <laughs> um, yeah, and um, I guess um, my my last question really was, um, since you both work in other areas now, um, what does it feel like to win a share of this really prestigious prize for work that you did as early career researchers um, several years ago? Um, so I'm greatly honoured to receive the 2022 rank prize for optoelectronics. Uh, I'd like to share this honor with my uh, supervisors and my family. Uh, when I was a PhD student, uh, I was trying to get novelty to my research. Uh, I was worried about the future of perovskite solar cell after I had published Jack's paper in 2009. But um, Dr. Lee uh, had visited to Japan um, and uh, he published such a good result. So I was very excited to see the result um, and uh, expected to become a popular uh, the perovskite material for solar cells. 
So, and now uh, we have received the pri uh, rank prize together. I'm very pleased uh, that these efforts have been recognized uh, by the award of uh, rank prize. So uh, these experiments uh, are giving new energy to me. Uh, that is why I am still uh, tackling to new materials development now. Well, thank you. Yeah, it definitely must be um, really exciting to to see that it's being recognised, that it was such a, a great idea and that it's been developed and recognised now. Um, and yeah, and uh, Mike, um, do you have any anything to add to that, how it feels to, to win a prize for something you did a while ago in a field that you're not in anymore? Yeah, uh, <laughs> honestly, it, it felt odd initially. Um, yeah. I was uh, in a good way, I guess. It was surprising because I was like, "Wow, it's been a while since I've even you know thought about these materials." And you know, early career researchers they rarely get any recognition for these sort of prizes, uh -huh. and and if they do, they tend to be, "Oh, it's a junior prize uh, for you know young researchers," but not you know we're not considered the same as your peers, and um, yeah. you know we're sharing this. Um, award with our supervisors our mentors and uh yeah. you know our role models that a lot of people we, we looked up to as, as young researchers so it's, it's it's huge i think for us and um i think from my perspective it's incredibly progressive from rank prize to even consider um sort of early career researchers uh, for, for such yeah. a, an honor so yeah mm -hmm. i mean honestly it hasn't quite sunk in yet um i'm really <laughs> looking forward to seeing everyone in january um and, and celebrating with them um yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's very well deserved. So congratulations to both of you um, on, on receiving the prize. You can read more about Akihiro and Mike's work on the Rank Prize website. Thanks for being on the podcast, everyone. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Carmen Palacios Barraquero, Akihiro Kojima, Mike Lee, and Laura Hiscott for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, James Dacey. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World's Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester talks to three scientists who are searching the heavens for signs of alien technologies. You can find all the episodes of the Stories podcast on the Physics World website or at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.